Good day to everybody. This is Zachary Kameen, the Curious Christian, and these are Curious Conversations. I am on the road again to ride my bike to work right now. So it is 6 o'clock in the morning, or 0600. What's the O stand for? It stands for, oh my god, it's early. And... That being said, uh, we are in a time of great festivity right now. Uh, lights are gleaming around dead trees uh, as I ride my bike past a main office building. And we are in a season by which in the midst of death and dormitism uh, uh, and snow and ice and all the glorious things that come with the winter uh, it causes the uh, northern hemisphere Christian to meditate on many things And one of those things that during the Advent season, we are encouraged to think about is uh, the way in which we are called to obey God, to to listen to God, to uh, love God. And what, what way is that? Well, you turn to Deuteronomy, Leviticus... Uh, you turn to the Gospels, and the Lord Jesus says uh, to somebody who asks, "What is the greatest commandment?" He says, <clears throat> "The greatest commandments are uh, first: uh, you shall love your, or you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength." And the second is like it, like unto it, as in it's just as great, is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These hang the laws and the prophets. As in, how do you know whether or not you are doing these? You, you know that you are loving your neighbor. And you know that you're loving your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength when you uh, read the law and the prophets and seeing what they say, do as they say. If you do not, if you disobey, if you disobey God in these statutes, then you are effectively not keeping the two great commandments. Uh, so, in this time of Advent, which in many traditions, the vast majority of the Christian church, this is a time of inward uh, spect- speculation, uh, introspection, navel gazing, oftentimes we take it too far. Uh, I want to touch on uh, loving. 
the Lord your God with your whole heart. And what implications uh, are made in doing such a thing? Uh, first thing is that, from my understanding of history and whatnot, uh, the heart, uh, of course, me uh, in one sense, refers to the organ, the heart, and in another sense, refers to the very core of the being. And I kind of want to talk about why it is that they relate or do almost a one-for-one comparison between the organ, the heart, and the, uh, the, like, spiritual equivalent, as it were. The, uh, how both, how it just makes, naturally it makes sense. And hopefully I'll make enough sense in order to show that it makes sense. So, whilst, think about the heart, right? Okay, it is an organ in your body, in your chest cavity, that uh, stores, reproduces, and circulates through the act of pumping blood, uh, sending it out and sending it in. And it is a air, you know, as it were, it's an airtight seal. The only air that is allowed to get into the bloodstream is the air that the, the lungs and the heart allow to enter the bloodstream. <clears throat> uh, a lot of problems happen <laughs> when the, uh, when the process is disturbed, as it were. And so it is extremely important to recognize the uh, it's extremely important when we're dealing with this law, this commandment that we recognize first uh, the physical heart as something that beats blood throughout your body to your brain to your legs, to your toes, so from your head to your toes, from your uh, shoulders to your fingertips, blood is being pumped, and it's being pumped by your heart, right, so we don't have multiple hearts to pump this bad boy, Uh, we don't have hearts in order. We don't have multiple hearts like one in the arm, one in the legs to to help circulate. You got one heart and you need to take care of that heart in order to pump this blood throughout the whole of your body. And the bigger your body, the harder it is to pump right? all that blood through. So you need a bigger heart in one sense. Or at least a heart that is comparable or is proper to uh, the rest of your body. <clears throat> and so, 
the importance of the heart is undeniable. Without your heart, you'd be dead. Uh, because, or basically dead, right? You, you could mechanically pump blood through your body. <clears throat> but your body would quickly reject that. Your body knows when your heart is the thing pumping and a machine's pumping and people who are on life support don't make it very long because they need uh, their heart to do it themselves and their body rejects it <coughs> oftentimes uh, so you don't just need a heart you need your heart uh, there are a lot of heart transplants where somebody will get somebody else's heart in order to survive uh, and that heart gets rejected by the body because you can't have a one for one like it uh, your heart is unique to you sometimes your body tolerates another person's heart inside of you but not often not often enough to where you can say that it's definitely guaranteed a heart transplant will square away a person <coughs> and save their life. So, I'm keeping on stressing this. Uh, the reason why I stress it is because in both the Old and New Testament, we start with the heart in obedience. Well, why is that? Well, because, like the organ that pumps life into the body, or circulates life into the body, so the heart uh, of a person, not organ, but philosophical conviction, core of the matter, the very being of the person, gives life, circulates the blood of conviction, the blood of religion, into a person to give the rest of the uh, thing strength. So, so as it were, when a baby is in a mother's womb, the first organ to be noticeable is the heart. Without the heart, that infant would be uh, unable to uh, have strength, unable to have the ability of knowledge. And so it's important for a man's heart to be converted, to be born again, so that he can obey with his mind and so that he can obey with his strength metanoia the Greek word for changing your mind repenting is only possible after a heart transplant of the spiritual sense right the the immaterial heart can only be transplanted, or must be transplanted before the immaterial mind can change.
you and without that heart transplant your mind is doomed to only choose only think only process what the heart puts in <clears throat> um, often enough and I don't and I am probably wrong with uh, this uh, assessment because I've heard really good preachers make this point uh, that people go to hell um, by about 18 inches. Oh, pay attention, lady. Uh, sorry. Somebody almost hit me. It's always a good time when you're riding your bike and somebody doesn't see you. Even though I've got a pretty sweet reflector vest on. Uh, here, here's where, here's my view on the whole head knowledge versus uh, heart transplant and you know the you're, you go to hell because it's uh, 18 inches uh, the the distance between your head and your heart and uh, so people don't people take it to mind but they don't take it to heart is what the point is and so the preacher is encouraging you to take it to heart All right so I disagree as far, or I agree and disagree in this as so far as this. Head knowledge without heart transplant is simply a blood transfusion. Okay, let me repeat that again. Head knowledge uh, without a heart transplant, so knowledge without, ch knowledge without a heart change uh, is simply or knowledge without uh, regeneration is simply a blood transfusion which is why just like when you uh, give somebody blood that's a, not the right type of blood there is extremely dangerous uh, repercussions extremely dangerous uh, uh, effects that happen to a person who gets a blood transfusion that is of not the right blood type and it's and, and I, I get it this is is very general and you're welcome and uh, but it, it's common enough to be able to say it's general that's why we care about blood types because we don't want to give somebody the wrong blood during a blood transfusion and so a blood transfusion like a knowledge transfusion is ineffective and often dangerous to the impenitent because their heart is the same so you're trying to give a person with a corrupt heart 
incorruptible knowledge. And then we're surprised when the person rejects it wholesale. Uh, and not only rejects it, but violently uh, flails and has almost like a mental and intellectual seizure where they explode Facebook in a rage because their body is trying to, their mind is trying to get out all of the things. <clears throat> so, when, when, so that being said, for you Christians who evangelize or who are evangelizing their neighbors, their, your uh, family, your loved ones this season. Uh, this is not a discouragement to give somebody hard truths about uh, about the Christian doctrines and you know you're this, you know, you're, I'm not encouraging you to not do it, right? I'm encouraging you to recognize that when you give these, I'm encouraging you not to be surprised. There we go. Those are the words. There it is, Zachary. Uh, I'm encouraging you to not be surprised when your loved one. Uh, freaks out uh, or their life they start making really bad decisions and their life goes downhill and then they start blaming God and they start blaming you and they start blaming everybody and their mother especially their mother for all of the things <sighs> recognize that part of that has to do with uh, their body, their their spiritual body, as it were, their uh, noia, rejecting uh, the truth of God as a body rejects a blood transfusion. So, and I encourage you, right? And so th th there's that. So moving on to something else. Uh, how do you know if you have, you know, how as a Christian do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you have a true heart? How do you know that uh, you are a Christian, you are in Christ, um, and not just some... Uh, cultural Christian, some uh, societal saint. Uh, here, here's a couple clues for you. Uh, how do you react to the blood of Christ? How do you react to the knowledge of Christ? How do you? How do you? How does your spiritual body? How does your mind? What What do you think? when you think of Christ? How does your mind react to Christ? How does your strength react to Christ? Right. How, 
how, how does does your does your body convulse into a thousand and one denials of every Christian doctrine and every command of Christ and everything that the scriptures say if your body does that then you can more than rest assured that you're probably an unbeliever at, at this time obviously uh, when, when a, and the reason why I say this is when God converts a man he converts them all the way uh, he converts them fully uh, so meaning that when a man is converted he can't say that Jesus is my savior but, but, but not my lord he can't say that why well because it would be a heart transplant without a without a mind change which means uh, your your body is rejecting the heart and God doesn't waste hearts uh, often enough there's a reason why there's people who are on the transplant list who never get a heart well that's because the hearts that are offered for a transplant are not proper for that person and so uh, the doctor is not willing to waste a heart on somebody that they know will not uh, uh, work with and I'm pretty sure that I've reached the limit of the analogy of the physical heart as it relates to the spiritual heart uh, so I will not continue on with the physical heart but I will continue with uh, what would be the effects right. right so I mentioned you know what what would be the effects of somebody who uh, is simply getting a blood transfusion without repentance uh, and I would encourage you to recognize that before a before the transplant of the heart two people die right, let me repeat that again at the transplant of a heart two people die and in the case of the Christian becoming a Christian going from a sinner to a saint you die and Jesus dies the heart that you're transplanted with is the heart of Christ right. so on the cross so scripture says that we have a heart of stone 
And um, the Lord promises that He will give us a heart transplant where He will replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That heart of flesh is Jesus' heart. Uh, that heart of stone is our heart. And we are to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And this is something that God does. This is, this is, this is extremely important. Uh, it, there are too many churches that encourage a heartless Christianity or a stone-hearted sanctification where they tell somebody that they must have the trappings of Christianity without Christ and one day when you're good enough you will then go to heaven. Uh, that you can uh, be saved different ways but not by the heart and and basically says that salvation is a process by which uh, through much blood transfusion and exercise your heart will change or your heart will just naturally become a fleshly heart from a stony heart but in scripture it's the other way around the heart is exchanged or transplanted and then the rest of the body uh, follows suit uh, another way uh, using that same visual uh, the this is kind of a squirrel, this is kind of a rabbit trail. Uh, something for me that I just found curious in my mind while I'm talking was <coughs> God has replaced the temple of stone, the uh, stony temple of Jerusalem that was the heart of uh, the Judaic Aeon, and he has replaced it with a heart of flesh being the uh, living stones. Uh, first, or Peter, in his letters, I can't remember whether it's his first or second letter, says that we are uh, a temple uh, of living stones. Uh, another, another way that I would put it, it is a temple of fleshy stones. It is a, are stones with organs. They are stones with blood. It is blood-filled stones. It is a heart stone. It is a stone with heart, a heart in it. It is a stone with eyes. <coughs> so, there is another visualization, the, the layers upon layers. So that was a squirrel. But to stick with the analogy that I'm rolling with, uh, but you know, ch you know, bookmark that for your own edification of a more corporate 
interpretation of it, but bring it to an individual interpretation also. Uh, we, we must die in order to live. We, we are said that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Right, so we recognize that we are dead first in the relationship. Christ dies for the dead. And also the dead die in Christ. Because Christ gets our heart. Christ, Christ gets our heart and he lives with our heart. He bears our heart on the cross. And in Christ, our heart dies and kills Christ. His body wholeheartedly rejects it so that he sweats drops of blood. He, con- you know, he convulses. Everything that I mentioned of a, a bad reaction and rejection of a heart, Christ goes through during the ordeal of the cross. And so, we who have died in Christ and are raised to life are given a new heart, the heart of Christ, so that we may not live for ourselves, not live in the gratification of our stony hearts and our flesh, but we are called by God, we are taught by the Holy Spirit to live for Christ. We are called to live in such a way that is pleasing unto the Lord. I'm pretty sure that I have exhausted my mind on this matter as much as I possibly can. There are wiser men who have talked at greater lengths. I hope this encourages you to, uh, one, put your faith, hope, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Uh, That also, though, that this would encourage you to read more, to pray more, to seek God's face more, to basically live out the life that your heart is pumping in you. Scripture says that the blood is the life of the body. And that blood is pumped by the heart. Christ says, you know, the the Scriptures, and I believe, and Christ in one sense alludes to this in John chapter 4. And if you read John chapter 4 and read John chapter 6, and you just read the Gospel of John, uh, he says to the woman at the well that if she was to ask of him, he would give her a give her living water, and that she would become a fountain of living water. Right? And how does this work? Well, in John chapter 6, he calls a Christian 
could drink his blood. And so, I would encourage you to, uh, Christ's heart is that living fountain by which his living water flows, and we are called to drink his blood. And in drinking his blood, we, our hearts, are transubstantiated to become like Christ. In the transplant of blood, through the, di- through the digestive faith, the faith of digestion, uh, or the digestive faith, we become more like Christ. This is where I think our papist brothers and sisters got it wrong, that in the Eucharist, in the communion, it is not the body, it is not the bread and wine that become uh, more like Christ. They are not the ones that become like Christ. We are the ones that become like Christ. In drinking of Christ's blood by faith, we become like Christ. Now, if for your own sentiments you feel the desire to see Christ's blood as, or the wine as Christ's literal blood, and it's transubstantiated as such, uh, I'm not going to get salty with you as long as you recognize that it is not the body, or it is not the bread and wine that Christ is worried about, uh, transubstantiating. Uh, it is his church that he seeks to transubstantiate. Uh, when, when we, and how does that look? Well, transubstantiation, uh, to mess it up, and my papist friends can correct me um, in the areas that I'm wrong. By all means, please do so. Uh, in transubstantiation, uh, it is taught that the body, or the bread of the Eucharist is the actual, or becomes the real body of Christ, uh, but it remains with all of the attributes of bread, right? So it doesn't become our skin and our bones and our our muscle. Like, it's not a noticeable change, right? And so that's why I say that the substance has changed, not the uh, outward appearance. But it's actually that. Similarly, with the blood, or with the wine. The wine substantially becomes the blood of Christ, but it does not become the uh, actual blood of Christ, in the sense that uh, you can pour, you can cut yourself, pour a cup of your actual blood, your physical blood, your visible blood, into a cup, and you put the wine into the other cup, and you pray over the wine, and it becomes of the same thing 
as the, uh, the cup of actual blood. Uh, I forget the name or the word that Aristotle uses to define like the difference between substance and the other thing. Uh, and please correct me, especially you, Opara, because I know you're listening. Uh, but so the reason why I'm stressing this is because often enough my papist friends will stress the transubstantiveness of the bread and the blood or and the wine of the Eucharist, but do not stress the transubstantiation of the believer. Let me repeat that. We, if we stress only this transubstantive uh, reality of the bread and wine, and do not stress then the uh, transubstantive uh, reality of the believer, then uh, there there is no hope. Uh, a, a Calvinist, certainly a, well, certainly I, as a Calvinist, uh, though I do not subscribe to transubstantiation of the bread and wine, I do recognize that the bread and wine have a transubstantive effect upon the believer. And so as the believer uh, drinks the wine and eats the bread, they are by faith being transubstantiated into more or transubstantiated more and more into the image and likeness of God, the image and likeness of Christ. Uh, so, those are my thoughts. Uh, those are my thoughts on the matter. I hope this helps you in your seeking to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And until next time, go and fight, laugh, and feast as a takeaway from the Cross Politic Network. Uh, speaking of which, if you haven't listened to Cross Politic, then please. Do so. God bless you guys. Take care.